From the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. I'm delighted to welcome two guests to the program today, the co-founders of Professors at Play, an organization that invites educators to explore the transformative power of play in higher education. My guests are the co-editors of the recently published Professors at Play Playbook, an anthology of playful teaching techniques collected from 65 professors across a variety of disciplines, featuring tried and true strategies to create a more playful higher education classroom. The Professors at Play Playbook is available as a free download, and we will definitely put the link in our show notes. My first guest is Dr. Lisa Forbes, a professor of counseling at the University of Colorado, Denver. She is the author of many articles and research studies about playful pedagogy, including the process of play and learning and higher education, a phenomenological study. Dr. Lisa Forbes, welcome to the collab. Hi, thanks for having us. And it's my pleasure to introduce Lisa's Professors at Play co-founder, Dr. David Thomas, an architecture professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the executive director of online programs at the University of Denver. He's the co-author of Fun, Taste, and Games from MIT's Playful Thinking series. Dr. David Thomas, thanks so much for being here. Wow, thanks for having me and Lisa too, thanks. Let's start by talking about playful pedagogy itself. What exactly does playful pedagogy mean to each of you? Sure. Well, I think when people first hear playful pedagogy, they think, oh, it's play, it's cute, it's child childlike stuff that's frivolous and a waste of time. So I think when people hear that, they don't listen any further. But to me, it's more complex than that. Playful pedagogy is this underlying philosophy, and it's actually pretty complex and sophisticated. Um, and it's using the power of play to do a lot of things in teaching and learning, actually. The power of play can help students get comfortable, build trust, create a classroom environment that is conducive to learning. It can do it create it creates brain-based learning. Um, students, it's more hands-on, and so they just learn better. Um, and it's also this underlying philosophy or worldview that faculty can have. So to me, it's a lot of things, um, which we love talking about it so we can help people see it's not just for kids. Absolutely. And we'll definitely go more in depth on all those things as we continue our conversation today. David, how about you? I mean, Lisa really nailed it. Uh, the only thing I would add is just to get even broader to say, you know, play is this gift that life gives organisms that allows them to learn and adapt and, and accommodate and connect and you know as far as we know all forms of life play or have some form of play you know play is important to the development of children but um, we're increasingly understanding that play is also a huge part of just mental health and adults and so when you look at the global notion of the benefits of play the bigger question is what's the matter with us in higher ed? Why did we get so serious and kick all the play out? We need to get it back in. <laughs> totally. I love this notion of play as a gift that life gives to all organisms, including us. And yeah, why don't we do more of it? It's just so joyful and such a fundamental part of being human. So what kinds of experiences, good or bad, did you have as students 
And how did those experiences lead you both to bring more play into your classrooms as professors? I am a neurodiverse learner. And so traditional education just never worked for me. It was actually pretty traumatic for me. And I experienced it as rigid and formal and kind of fitting into one way of knowing and learning. Um, so I think that really informed my desire and passion to teach with playful pedagogy because I I think our formal education system doesn't really work for everybody, even people who aren't neurodiverse or have other you know learning challenges. So I don't know. I think I experienced education as boring and dry. And so I want to do something different. So sometimes Lisa and I talk about the Professors of Play project as trying to return that spirit back to higher ed, that idea that it's a community of learning and connection and growth rather than as a treadmill that you have to try to excel at so you can potentially get a job and pay your student loans. Yeah, as somebody who works in higher ed now, I want to bring those types of opportunities and experiences to today's students. And, you know, as you said, it's such a stressful world out there. So what can we do to bring some more joy and levity? Because at the end of the day, learning is something that's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be about discovery. It's supposed to be essential to our human experience. So why is it that play has been historically marginalized in many higher education settings? Or kind of to put it more playfully, why does academic rigor often lead to rigor mortis in the classroom? It's because higher ed is obsessed with its own authority. It's obsessed with the authority of the professor. It's obsessed with the authority of the discipline. It's obsessed with the authority of the institution. And um, play naturally challenges those kind of hierarchies. I mean, you know, the, the, what's, what's one of the emblems of play? It's the, the court jester, right? The one person who can speak truth to power. And so I think that little by little, as we kind of turned the, the uh, institutions of higher education into these kind of Fordist or Taylorist, you know, assembly lines of knowledge. I think that it just retrenched faculty and administration deeper and systems of power. And so I think that people became very fearful and they tried to hold on more and more to their authority. I mean, this is kind of a meta analysis, but I think essentially we have been on a long road of sadness and seriousness in higher ed. And I, I think that truly when we talk about professors of play, we're talking about a redemption, not just of pedagogy, but maybe of the soul of the institution. For me, it comes down to these cultural scripts and cultural narratives that we have about play in higher ed. I experience it as very formal, very rigid. So to me, I think the big hangup is just societal narratives and a misunderstanding about play and the complexity of play. It sounds like people who aren't engaging in play might just be acting out of fear, out of fear that constricts them to conforming to a perception of uh, kind of a mask that they have to, quote unquote, wear as a formal academic, um, whereas acting in a playful way as a teacher is really acting out of hope and expansiveness and engagement and all these wonderful things we know that play does because we study it but you know folks who might just hear that term might not be familiar with it so let's talk more in depth about play we know that all mammals and indeed as david noted all organisms engage in some form of play humans uh, very much among them so tell us more about what we know from evolutionary biology about the necessity of play in human development I would say that, you know, Brian Sutton Smith, the great scholar of play, you know, he, he concluded that, you know, play was this evolutionary advantage. It was a way that we kind of adapted and, and grew. The underlying mechanics of what we would think of as play were really the genesis of where we create knowledge. Um, and that's pretty exciting to think that, you know, 
no, no knowledge is created without play. No art is created without play. Um, and so I think some of these things are really about our our psychological adaptability. Um, you know, if a lot of knowledge is about certainty, it's about knowing the right things, knowing the right answers, solving the equation correctly. Play is about ambiguity, open-endedness, you know, solution-making, meaning-making. And, and honestly, if you just listen to what I just said, which of those two ends sounds like higher ed? Solutions to problems, specific solutions to problems through rote discovery or adaptability, ambiguity, solution-making, meaning-making. I mean, we're like, the, the fundamental soul of higher education should be play. We mean play very broadly, the whole idea of playing, playing with, playing at, playing around. Let's craft a really expansive definition of play to explore what makes play such a powerful mechanism for learning. For me, play is deeply constructivist as it's all about meaning making. Mm -hmm. Play can bring us into a state of flow. It can be a source of new discoveries. It can disrupt structures of power and status. It involves collaboration even when there's competition. It tends to be more process oriented and tends to have feedback mechanisms naturally built into the playful activities themselves. True play has to be safe and opt in because it causes us to be vulnerable as we step out into the unknown where new ways of seeing and doing can emerge. So what else does play evoke for you both? And what else would you add to expand upon our growing definition of play and learning? It, I mean, for me at the base of it is it's about relationship building and connection forming. And from that, there's so many things that come um, in terms of learning or relationships or self-esteem or, you know, positive emotions. So I think that is always at the core for me. Play itself, I think, um, one part that I enjoy is it can sometimes exist outside um, reality or it can exist outside our conventional understanding of society. Um, so it almost reduces pressure or reduces stigma or self-consciousness. And so I think when we're in that space, we're just more generative in a lot of ways. Um, the thing that I probably love about it the most is that it pushes limits. And when we push limits, when we push outside status quo or norm or supposed tos, then we get to reimagine something new and create a new, you know, a new limit or expanded limit or just multiple limits. So that, that that's probably the most important piece for me is just challenging norms and status quo. And play does that really well. You know, from my, from my kind of academic field of study, I've spent a lot of time looking at the idea of fun and fun as an aesthetic understanding of the world. So the only thing I would ever add is I think that I think that that full hearted play is always fun. Um, and I, I don't I, that doesn't mean it can't be hard. I mean, you know, Lisa likes to talk about her years as a soccer player and the coach that told you what get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I never met someone who was as happy being uncomfortable as long as she believed in the purpose. But I think there's joy and delight even in hard things, climbing mountains, you know, paddling across oceans or doing crossword puzzles. But I think if your play isn't inherently fun, if your embrace of the world doesn't feel like that joy and wonder, then I think your play is mechanical and I think it's sinking into something different. Yeah, and it's so personal, you know, for what for one person is joyful for another person would be really too much or tedious. So it's very much a, a personal exploration. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's just another way of engaging. Uh, in in learning and in, in all of these endeavors we're trying to do and growth in higher ed. 
So let's talk more about the book you just published, The Professors at Play Playbook. You organized the book around the pyramid of play, four different ways of integrating playfulness into teaching. The base of the pyramid is just being a more playful professor, showing up as your authentically playful self, whatever that means to you. The second level is using playful activities to build connections, relationships, and foster feelings of safety and belonging in your classroom. The third level is using play to teach content in a variety of ways. And the top of the pyramid is whole course design, framing and teaching your entire course in an imaginative and inherently engaging way. Let's start by talking about the base of the playful teaching pyramid, being a playful professor. As Parker Palmer says, we teach who we are. So this first step is about bringing however playfulness genuinely shows up in your life into your identity and practice as an educator. Lisa, tell us more about this. Well, this goes back to my belief that higher education, we have this belief we need to be rigid and strict boundaries and overly serious all the time. And I think our idea of professionalism, we become more rigid. And, you know, I've even been told as a junior faculty member, make sure you start out this semester very strict, and then you can loosen up, but students won't take you seriously. And that doesn't work. I mean, I don't think ever, but especially for me. So I think it's just not taking ourselves so seriously. And again, redefining professionalism and allowing play to exist within that. Like I can be a playful professor and I can still be professional. I can be a playful professor and I can still have boundaries with students. I can still be rigorous. So um, yeah, just not taking ourselves too seriously and just doing, being ourselves more so in the room. So being authentic and genuine. Um, maybe letting students in a little more to know who we are and not like full self-disclosure. But um, to me, it starts with that. Like we can't do play in the classroom unless we ourselves are playful. You know, it's interesting to me, we put the pyramid of play together as just an organizational rubric, you know, just to try to help people understand that like, hey, start at the bottom, do the easy stuff, just be more playful and move your way up. Um, I think Lisa and I have discovered over the past year or so that that bottom of the pyramid is fundamental, um, that um, professors that try to dump playful techniques into their classroom may struggle because they haven't reconciled how it reflects on their own identity or, you know, maybe there's issues of control or power. Um, and so when I look at the bottom of the pyramid, the playful pyramid, um, I think the real challenge is we're asking for a certain level of self-enlightenment and liberation of the professor. We're not saying wear Hawaiian shirts to your lectures or crazy hats or, you know, start every lecture with a joke. I mean, we're not, we, we don't, we're very unprescriptive about that because as you pointed out, different professors are playful in different ways. I mean, I've had professors in my philosophy degree that I thought were very playful, but they were suit and tie kind of guys that, you know, looked, looked the part, but they had a wicked sense of humor, which may be appropriate for that role. It may not be appropriate for a, you know, a young untenured professor who feels like maybe more their style is to just, you know, dress a little different. I, I don't, you know, we don't, again, we don't prescribe. And one of the benefits of the playbook is we asked, you know, our community, how, how are you playful? And the range is, is wide. And we hope that people will see what other people are doing and be like, that feels authentic to me. <laughs> how does it show up for you guys? I mean, how do you show up uh, in your most playful way to the base of the pyramid in your classes? Yeah. 
the people that can't see me on the podcast, I'm an old white guy, right? I could put on a tie and a jacket. I get unearned privilege, right? I get respect just showing up because I look like a professor, right? So then if I just make a wisecrack, I'm a playful professor, right? All I have to do is walk into a classroom and make a wisecrack. I'm a playful professor. Now that's, that's you know, for, for me, there's more to it. There's there's being authentic about it. There's there's reaching out and trying to form connections. There's being playful, being intellectually challenging the students in a in a playful way. You know, being jokey. It's about the kind of assignments I have. It's about how I portray myself. It's about how I introduce myself in kind of a whimsical, kind of funny way. So, but but again, I want to I want to emphasize. I've got it easy. I want Lisa to talk about how she does it because I think her story is inspiring. Well, you can't see me on this podcast but I look like a student. <laughs> I, I am a young female, um, you know, tattoos, way too many rings, braided bracelets. Like I just look like a student. So, but for me, I think playfulness comes in. It's that authenticity. And I think authenticity is playful. And I don't, that's different for everyone. I don't really know how to describe that for me, but um, I connect with students. I joke, make jokes um, in the classroom. My assignments are playful sometimes. My syllabi is playful. My lectures are playful. Lectures, I put in air quotes because I don't really lecture too long, but I have visuals and there's jokes within it. Um, I create assignments in a playful way. So we have students do discussions, small group, small group discussions in class. And instead of just students, you're going to talk about this thing and then we'll share in a large group. I turned it into a Martian mission. And then I made a really ridiculous video of myself as a Martian, like just this crazy filter. And then I described their Martian mission as a Martian. So stuff like that. I just don't take myself too seriously and students kind of giggle at that stuff. But one thing I was going to say earlier is this playfulness, that bottom rung to me is a lot about modeling as well. We expect students to be open, to be flexible, to be creative, to be vulnerable. And if we're not doing those things ourselves, it's hard to ask students to do that. And so when we're playful and authentic and genuine, and we're making mistakes in the classroom, we're being vulnerable, students just let their guard down and then they're able to do those things that we ask of them. So I, th I think of playfulness is helpful in that way as, as well. You know, if I could add on to that real quick, I mean, it just makes me think of an example, like, you know, when I introduce myself to my classes, now granted, I teach the architecture of fun, but I'll tell this big, long, silly story about going to visit the birthplace of Kool-Aid and how lame it was, right? And I'm showing a picture of me in shorts and, you know, on vacation. And, and I think it's just sort of setting the stage of like going, what you see here is this professor, but who I'm actually is this other person. And what I've noticed something, I noticed this last summer, I thought it was really fascinating in my online class. I routinely refer to myself as Dr. Thomas. I just figure students would rather take a class from Dr. Thomas than from David. I just figure Dr. Thomas is a more interesting character to pay money to, right, in the, in the, in the bigger picture. But I noticed by the end of that class, the students called me David. And I, and I, I took that as a huge success because I didn't lose power. I didn't lose authority. What I earned was connection, that they, they decided I was okay. I was another human being that was looking out for them and they were right. And I, I was very excited about that. That's fantastic. And you described earlier play as a connection forming tool, which will lead into our second category of the pyramid. Um, but 
it sounds like both of you are really committed to having fun in the classroom for whatever's fun for you. And if you bring something that you're genuinely excited about, there's a good chance that excitement's going to carry over to the students. They're going to feel that and at least want to try it out because, you know, that's just contagious. If you think something's fun, I'm, I'm happy to try it too. Whereas, you know, if they, if, if, like you said before, if uh, when I was a, when I was a public school teacher and they were like, don't smile till Christmas. And it was kind of a joke, <laughs> but kind of not. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be there if nobody's smiling. I mean, that's just not interesting. So, yeah. so let's move on to that second category of the playful teaching pyramid. The second level of the playful teaching pyramid is using play to break the ice in your classroom, to build connections and relationships and create a community of inquiry that's safe, welcoming and promotes feelings of inclusion and belonging. So how have you seen this done? Oh, a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> what I'll say first is I'd say most faculty probably do some type of icebreaker on the first day of class, getting to know you, name game, go around the room. You know, I think a lot of them could be a little more playful, but usually after that first night, those types of connection formers stop. And now we get to the real learning air quotes again. And so I think this is the thing that faculty miss a lot of the time and are afraid to do because it's usually not connected to the content or the learning at first blush, because it does. Because if you do this on a regular basis, I try to do these almost every day of class. If you do it on a regular basis, that's what creates that underlying relational safety and reduction of barriers so we can get to the learning. I think we underutilize this for sure. But yeah, our book has a ton of examples of this. I made this game called Wacky Questions. And you know those children's sticky hands? They're like gooey in the, a hand and you can slap stuff with it. I got those. I give each student one of those. And I created my own wacky questions, put them on each post-it notes. I lay the post-it notes face down on a table and students come up with their slappy hand, sticky hand, and they introduce themselves, what track they're in, and then they have to slap a card and whatever card they get, they read in front of the class and answer. And these questions are just ridiculous. Like, name everything you've done in a sink. What's your biggest flaw as a pedestrian? If you could send <laughs> subliminal messages to all the squirrels at once, what would the message be and describe the scene of the aftermath? They're just like silly questions that really um, takes the defenses down of students. What What's one you have, David? I mean, this one's not in the book, but a bunch of years ago, the students showed up to class. I was co-teaching the class. There was a big note on the whiteboard that said class is not canceled. And there was a manila envelope. And they opened the manila envelope, there was a puzzle in there. And if they put the puzzle together, there was the first clue. So in the first half hour of class, they spent looking for their instructors. We were just hiding somewhere on the floor. Now, traditionally, you'd be like, oh, my God, I could not possibly spend that much time in class, you know, doing something so irrelevant. But I think it just gets the students connected to each other. It keeps them curious. I guarantee you, they never came to our class with the mindset of, I know how this is going to go, <laughs> you know. They, they came to my class sparkling and open to new ideas. And so I think that what um, I would say about the level two of the pyramid icebreakers, or Lisa likes to call them connection formers, which is more apt, is that the single biggest barrier to play in the classroom actually isn't the faculty. It's the students who have had play beaten out of them and told, you're spending all this money, get a good job, maximize, maximize, maximize. And I think icebreakers are incredibly important to start to reintroduce play to students in a safe space, because like, like I say, they're used to it. One last quick story. This again was last summer, I was teaching this, this asynchronous online class. And um, 
you know, we're meeting twice a week and I'm doing my icebreakers, you know, they're, and they're all just silly. They're things like Lisa's talking about wacky questions, or we'd play some weird video game or a quiz thing. I mean, it didn't make any difference. And I don't know, somewhere around the second third of the class, I was like, I came to class, I just forgot to do an icebreaker. And I started talking and the students are like, whoa, 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 where's our icebreaker? You got to understand, they never said boo about these things for the first 10 classes. They didn't say a word, but the first night I missed it, well, let's just say we did have an icebreaker that night because they needed it. It was part of the class. It's how they primed as they looked forward to it. And it made me realize that's the first and maybe the last time outside of play I've ever had students demand content from me. So this is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, because you're creating a culture. I mean, once you have that established, people love it. And without it, it's like, you know, what what even is this? I mean, there's there's a difference in your class versus the, what they're used to. And that could be the manila envelope top secret mission they do in the beginning. And then they're like every class they're like, what's going to happen or the Martian mission or whatever it is. I mean, that those are just wonderful ways to get more engagement and dynamism in your class. And I'm curious as to how you've seen that play out in, you know, when you then start to do things that are more challenging. I know Lisa, you teach mental health counseling. That can be a challenging topic. So how have you seen the safety that is created and community that's created with these connection forming activities actually reap dividends later on in the course? Yeah, and then that's the whole point is learning, especially certain topics is really stressful. And when student, my students come in, they have night class. So they come in, they work, most of them work full time. They come in, they're stressed, they had a long day. So play just kind of reduces those barriers and stress and gets them primed to learn. But students have told me with play, they feel more connected to each other, more trusting of each other and me. And so they say, I don't feel as nervous doing role plays in front of the class because it doesn't feel like a harsh judgmental place. I feel more willing and open to getting critical feedback on my counseling skills. So I think it all has that, the role. The other question we get is like, well, what about serious topics? Do you make them silly and playful? And I think that's kind of a nuanced conversation where we, in my program, I teach people to become counselors. And something we often have to do is um, risk assessments. If some a client is suicidal, we have to know how to assess their level of risk and maybe hospitalize that person. So that's not playful. That's not fun, I guess. Role plays are play, but that's not fun. That's very serious. So I don't make light of that. So if there's a heavy content focused class like that, we're doing suicide assessments, I make sure to do something light and playful at the start of that class to get people relaxed and ready for that. And for me, I'm really explicit about what I'm doing with students. And so at the very first night of class, I'll say, I use playful pedagogy. Here's what that is. Here's what it looks like. Here's the purpose. And so when we're doing that and then go straight into a very serious role play, they're not like, this is weird. This is like, you know, whiplash. They get it and they appreciate it. It sounds like you're using play always in explicit connection with your learning objectives and, and you're being transparent with the students as to here's why we're doing this, here's how it's going to serve you and us as a community of learners. So I think that's wonderful. And we're already transitioning into this third level of the playful teaching pyramid, which is all about using play to teach content in a variety of ways, whether you mentioned role plays, case studies, and there's so many forms, um, but it's all about ultimately active learning and not just lecturing, but using the, the myriad of forms that play can take 
to engage students in activities that put them, the students, rather than the professors, in the role of active meaning makers and causes the students to therefore learn more deeply and effectively. Because we know from decades of research that the most active people in any given classroom are the ones doing the most learning. So share some examples of ways that both assignments and assessments can happen in playful ways, not necessarily fun, serious playful ways, that engage students in deep and meaningful learning. First, I want to point out that, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Our level three pyramid is, is, is very symmetrical with ideas of active learning. The, the break would be, um, and we've talked about this recently, in the canon of active learning, there's things like share, compare, you know, in the lecture, clickers, and we're like, seriously? Like, I guess that's active learning only to someone who has had only been doing immobilized learning. It's it's very inactive. You know, for us, active learning or playful learning looks like students on their feet making noise, throwing balls, batting balloons around, laughing. You know, I mean, if there's one indication that you have a playful classroom, it's that people in the hallways are like, what is going on in there? That's an active classroom, right? So, so again, I mean, not every technique is designed to be uproarious, but um, I, 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 an example that I, I like to use because it's just amusing to me is um, I, I was teaching this architecture class and really having a lot of trouble getting them to deploy these concepts of, of playful architecture because they were so indoctrinated to do serious architecture and they just couldn't do it. They just couldn't, they couldn't allow themselves to break the rules, right? And so I said, okay, take all the rules that I'm trying to get you to, to break and I want you to do this. I want you to design a fun hamburger for my new hamburger joint. Within one second, they switched from being mentally unable to have fun to all of a sudden taking the course content and redesigning hamburgers. And it was glorious. And I realized that's the difference. It's just moving people from the rigid mindset into a playful mindset. It sounds like your students had divergent thinking trained out of them in the context of architecture, but in another context, it was like an explosion of creativity. So you're like, hey, if, apply this, you know, imagination to your building designs and, and that's where the magic's at. So, um, yeah. yeah. They needed permission to play. I mean, it's as simple as that. Faculty need permission to play, students need permission to play. And so I know Lisa's got a million wonderful examples of content. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier about um, a important element of play is existing outside reality because then there's we're freer to dream and explore and make mistakes. So I love that example David gave too that I have that I also notice help students get outside of reality to kind of be more creative and playful is um, the Martian mission one I described earlier, small group discussion, the video I have just basically explains the discussion, but then they have to pretend they're Martians coming to Earth, disguising themselves as human um, and figuring out a problem and reporting back so that they put themselves outside reality there. And then I do we in my program, we do a lot of case studies um, for clients, and that's kind of the best way to learn in a lot of ways. But I found that students do so many case studies that it becomes this kind of obligatory thing that happens in all classes. So I got a children's book called um, Giraffes Can't Dance, and I read that to the students, and then I created this client profile based off real facts about giraffes and turned it into reasons why a client might come to counseling. And then they get that. And then in groups, they, from their theoretical lens, they figure out what's happening with this client, Gerald, the giraffe. And 
they create a treatment plan of how would you, how would you treat this client? And so it's doing the same important skills they need to learn. They're still applying what they need to apply, but it's more in a playful kind of outside of reality way because no one's ever counseled a giraffe. So there's no right answer. Um, so they're allowed to be free and more creative. Um, and then in, you said something about like assessments, assignments. Uh, I, I think so many of the assignments we have feel like busy work to students or there's, you know, a way that we can present them that will actually help them learn on a deeper level, be more active. So I've tried to play around with making my assignments a little different and playful. So one of our accrediting bodies to get licensed, you have to know a certain amount about the accrediting body. And so what people typically do is like a multiple choice test, go to this accrediting body website and then take this test. That's really boring. And I think students just forget that information. So I created a digital escape room and students have to go to the accrediting body website, find the answers to the clues, break the locks to escape this escape room. So they're learning the same thing. It's just more fun. Um, I think sometimes our classes have multiple APA style papers. Great. They need to know how to you know, write and do APA style, but I don't think every single paper needs to be that same format. So I allow students to get creative and propose something to me. Like, how do you want to present your learning? Some people have done podcasts and they've been so good. And the student afterward, it's like, that podcast was so fun. And it actually took me three times longer than writing a paper would have, but I learned more. It was more fun. So I think there's just ways you can make learning and assessments way more fun than we tend to make them. And I bet it's way more fun for you to grade as well, rather than reading 50 APA style papers, you get one really cool podcast, you know, that's really interesting. Now it's a challenge with, you know, exactly how you're going to assess them, but that's the same thing with what you were talking about before, of they're learning the same thing, just in a more fun way. So you're going to assess the same objectives, just maybe in a more creative way, using rubrics, whatever it is. It's just is promotes deeper learning. I mean, if I had to study cram for multiple choice quiz or whatever, I'm going to forget that tomorrow. But if I have to make a cool project, I'm definitely going to remember, you know, what what I did and why it was important in the long run. And I love this idea of, you know, missions and quests and turning turning things into an escape room rather than just kind of just do the standard thing. It's just adding another element, an element of form to be more engaging. And, and also this idea you brought up of no right answers of like when it's an imaginative space, you know, counseling a giraffe rather than counseling, you know, this, this person, you know, I'm less kind of walking on eggshells with it and I'm more able to really be imaginative and creative in how I might respond and therefore learn more and make fail and make more mistakes because the stakes are low. It's a giraffe, right? And that's just a lot more uh, safe learning space. So let's move to our fourth level of the playful teaching pyramid, which is whole course design. So there are some great examples in the book, including using a Jurassic Park simulation to teach administrative law, teaching chemistry through the lens of pirates and more. So what are some of your favorite examples of favorite whole course design? Well, first I have whole course design envy. Honestly, my favorite example is teaching administrative law with Jurassic Park. I think a genius part of that is they have to use creativity. They can't borrow from existing laws because there's no such thing as an extinct dinosaur park. So they have to creatively figure out how to write these laws and create these laws. 
which helps them learn to think like a lawyer rather than just be imparted with information that lawyers should know. So that's my my favorite example. And I'm striving to figure out how to do that in my own classes currently. I mean, I think definitely using Jurassic Park to teach administrative law is a really comprehensive approach. You know, an example that's not in the book because it's a little more subtle, but I think it's worth explaining is a friend of mine, Brian Yonke, years ago, he was teaching like a an academic technology tools course, right? And he comes to me and he says, I am going to style my entire course after uh, after antique video games. I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. So he's kind of doing a, a full course theme, right? And then he says, and, and to make it fit with this theme, I'm going to make a course worth a million points, right? And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. No, no, I'm going to do it. So he implements this course. So, you know, it's so like playing pinball. So instead of assignments being worth five points or 10 points, they're worth 50,000 or 100,000 points, right? And of course, Canvas could keep track of all this and it went well, right? And so I love that as a, a full course intervention because he kind of just by, by adding this video game theme to the course is always kind of reminding his students at every turn, it's fun, right? And come on, how much fun is it to get a 90 on a, on a paper? Now getting 93,000 points on a paper, that's fun. So I, I think it can be as big as, as you know, I'm teaching, um, I'm teaching ancient Greece using the uh, playing with the past curriculum where there's complex scenarios and week after week you're, you're playing characters and you're inside the, the story and you're solving problems. Um, I, I, think, I think there's really that end of it. But I think there's also just keeping your whole classroom in some sort of a play bubble can, can be just as effective. Can you give us a brief take on the Jurassic Park and chemistry examples for folks who haven't uh, read the book yet? Sure. Um, so Roberto Carrada at my school, he decided to teach the course one time by having students read Jurassic Park. And then the entire course is they have to write briefs on the, the regulation of extinct animal parks. So instead of having them write administrative law about, you know, whatever, regulating interstate trade of, of, of you know, insulin drugs, or, you know, which is probably something they would do. They're writing this thing. And so it, it's kind of like giraffes can't dance. It activates the imagination. It forces you to consider the material in a more kind of playful mindset. But at the end of the day, he's asking you to write real laws. So I think that's just really, really lovely. The Pirates class is actually my boss, Keith Miller. Um, he's a he's a, an analytical chemist. And it's a first year seminar. And instead of just having students learn, you know, about science or whatever he's having them learn about the history of piracy the, the politics of piracy and you know the science of cannons and the science of boats and and it's this lovely class but what's most interesting to me about that example is i think the students like it i get to watch keith this this really you know quality successful dedicated professor having so much fun it's like watching him just absolutely in love with teaching and and i think that's the other side of the full course play is it's like now you get to play as a professor the whole semester. If you really design your course in this way, it's almost like you can fall back in love with teaching. It's very beautiful. Absolutely. When we talk to professors, I mean, I'm more and more leaning into the primary benefit of, of play. It's the fact that you will love your job more than you have, or you'll, you'll find the love you used to have for your job. The joy in teaching is the creativity and the uncertainty and you know, and like being uh, being present with the students instead of just being like, I'm chat GPT. I'm going to give you the same answers to your questions that I've given forever. I love this. It's about finding the joy, not only for the students, but for the professors, too.
if we find joy in teaching, if we feel passionate about it, it's going to be contagious. It's going to show in our teaching. Students are going to get bought in. So to me, it's almost like a precursor for you to love your job and have that joy in teaching as a precursor for what should come. Absolutely. Lisa, tell us a little bit more about the way that you see play as infused into all dimensions of the course or what's going on in the classroom when you see it really working well. So, I mean, the pyramid is part of that. So being playful yourself, doing those connection formers, using play to teach content. But my study that David was talking about, students described this process that happened for them. So they said when there's play in the classroom and playfulness, it's there's laughter, there's joy, there's excitement. When that happens, there's relational safety. So they learn to trust each other and me and connections are built. They feel a sense of community and belonging. And they said it just feels like a warm classroom environment. And then at the same time, it reduces barriers. So they come in from a stressful day. They're laughing, having fun, connecting. So their stress is reduced. Their anxieties from the day or just learning are reduced. They said they felt more centered to learn. And then once those things happen, then students have this increased engagement um, and motivation to engage, basically. So they said, I just felt like class time was fun. I wanted to come to class. I was interested in the process over the grade. The content became more intriguing. Um, and from that, they're more willing to be vulnerably engaged. My students are just more open to critical feedback. Playful learning is hands-on by nature. And so then they said, I learned more in this class than my other classes. The learning was more personal and memorable because we were doing and interacting with each other. So there's this really complex underlying thing that's happening when you invite play into your classrooms. And it's pretty powerful. When I look at it, it's so much about making sure that human being feels safe and connected in, in their education. And it starts at the classroom. Now, play isn't a cure-all drug, but I, I guarantee you the levels of engagement in a playful classroom among the students and among the students and the professor are higher than in any other classroom. And we have started to emphasize so much now that play creates relational safety, which is absolutely a precursor to learning, at least any kind of deep learning. I just don't know that we can focus enough on that word safety or that word vulnerability. And that's really, really a, a gateway to everything else. Mm -hmm. Sounds like in your research, you're discovering that play really has that as a superpower, that it creates that relational safety and that is necessary for learning. And there's so many initiatives trying to bring that on campus. And here's one that's just like, here's something any professor can do in a lot of different ways and different levels to bring that about. So I think that's really wonderful. It sounds like your curiosity led you to not only find each other, but find hundreds of other people around the world and build this network and write a book. And on our show, we have a special affinity for curiosity. So as we wrap up, let's talk about curiosity as inherent to playfulness, as they do seem to go hand in hand. Tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your lives. I think curiosity should fuel learning and I think in higher education, in a lot of ways, we've kind of killed student curiosity, which is a huge problem. So I think play and curiosity go hand in hand. I even think in some definitions of play, curiosity is in that definition. I don't know. I'm just a very curious person. I find myself inspired and passionate about things that don't have one answer or 
have never been answered or don't currently exist, but might be able to exist one day. So that's totally what Professors at Play is and what Playful Pedagogy is. As we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or anything I should have asked you? The entire Professors at Play project can be summarized as we're trying to give people that internal sense of a permission to play. I think that what we have to do is we have to get people brave enough to start playing again. Commit to some play, do something different, grab the playbook, it's free, pick a technique, give it a try. I think it's very difficult to be a play pioneer on your own. I think you got to go find your people. Um, the professors at play community, first and foremost, is that. I mean, we have diverse faculty at all different ranks all over the world, every discipline imaginable. I think it's really important that you you kind of build your, your support network close by. And I can say that professors at play, in a certain sense, is still based on that idea that, you know, playing through difference, you know, the world is bigger and more interesting. And by the way, thanks. I mean, you clearly are super prepared and thought about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Super. No, I really appreciate that, David. Lisa and David, thanks so much for joining me. Dr. Lisa Forbes and Dr. David Thomas are the co-founders of Professors at Play and the co-editors of the Professors at Play Playbook. And I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, stay curious. is an octopus oh that's pretty cool why the octopus because it's intelligent mysterious playful has lots of hearts three to be exact <laughs>